This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday, uh, once again, some uh, pretty pretty astonishing things coming out of the White House and, and how, the, how we react, I'm not sure. Uh, yesterday, the U.S. president announced that the U.S. would leave the Iran nuclear deal, which do, uh, where does this go from here? How will it affect us and our allies? Let's bring in Rex Brynan. He is a professor in the Department of Political Science, McGill University, and an expert in Middle East politics, regional conflict, and security development. He is with us now. Rex, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hello. So in layman's terms, Rex, why is Donald Trump pulling out of an agreement when all of the allies are begging him to stay? Uh, It's really the intersection of two things. The biggest factor is domestic politics. It it plays well to his his Republican base. Um, The second issue is he's, he's surrounded by a number of advisors who have always been hawkish on Iran and the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, who feel that the deal should have constrained Iranian behavior in non-nuclear areas as well. I mean, it was narrowly a deal about Iran's nuclear program and the suspension of the ending of that program, uh, but they wanted uh, something much bigger than that, which frankly wasn't wasn't achievable at the negotiating table. So it's really domestic politics and I think sort of hardline ideologues interacting. Uh, these are pretty big stakes to be playing to your base with, aren't they? Yeah, uh, although we've we've seen that before, haven't we? On on trade issues, on 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 NAFTA, on on tariffs. Yeah, but all of know. a sudden we're talking about nuclear war here. Yeah, well, messing up the international trading system is a pretty big yeah. one too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't think we're headed for nuclear war here. The really the really key question is what the Iranians do because from for them a major part of the deal was economic normalization and. U.S. sanctions don't just affect the ability of the Iranians to trade with the United States. They affect the ability of the Iranians to, to do other things. Like they can no longer buy Airbus aircraft from Europe because that includes U.S. engine parts, um, etc. So for the Iranians, the big reason that they decided to, you know, promise to never have a nuclear program was that they would be treated as a normal economic actor. Who knows what they'll do when that's off the table? What we do know is that the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese will be working very hard with the Iranians um, to find a way out of this. Uh, frankly, I don't think the Iranians want to return to their nuclear program either, but you know, if they're not being offered the benefits they were being offered, they've got to really take a second look, too. And it needs to be remembered that there were hardliners in Iran who didn't like this deal because they thought Iran had given up too much at the table. So there will be hardliners saying... See, Americans can't be trusted. We should back out of the deal. Iranians have been keeping their promise in this regard, have they not, though? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we know that. I mean, we just had a new International Atomic Energy Agency report on that. Uh, that's being said by, by the Brits, by the French, by the Germans. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community has confirmed that, although obviously they're not saying it loudly right now because they don't want to undercut the president. So why would you? Won't... So why would you try? Why would you take this off the table? What about this isn't working in the president's mind? Well, it's very hard to get in Donald Trump's yeah, mind, uh. isn't it? Um, I, I I don't think he understands the issues at all, and I think he just knows it plays well with the base, and he's got some advisors who don't like the deal. The criticism one hears is that it doesn't stop the Iranians doing things in Syria, for example, Um, that it's just about the nuclear program. Um, Under the agreement, Iran agreed to permanently give up any any ambition to have nuclear weapons, any steps in those directions, and agreed to 
uh, limited time uh, restrictions even on its civilian nuclear program. I think that was a terrific deal because I think a nuclear-armed Iran is a bad thing. Um, but, you know, there are those who unrealistically in the U.S. Uh, imagine the Iranians are going to agree to entirely change their foreign policy to abide with Washington's wishes. And that was never on the table, which is why it wasn't in the deal. So what is the advantage of doing this if before at least there were no nukes being developed and it seemed that they were keeping their promise? Now uh, they're burning flags in the streets again and there's talk of them ramping this back up. So where's, where's the advantage? Yeah, I mean, I've got to say the burning flags in the street thing is a little bit of marginal theater that very few Iranians are, are involved in and, and is just hardliners trying to send right. a signal. Um, you know, it's hard to say. There are people, uh, John Bolton, the current national security advisor, uh, Pompeo, now, now you know, uh, Secretary of State, um, who in the past have advocated war against Iran. Um, I don't think we're going there, uh, but there certainly are those in this administration who've said we don't want deals with Iran. We want to overthrow the regime. Um, the problem is that if you're the Iranian regime and, and you think there's that kind of logic on the American side, it's actually a powerful argument for having nuclear weapons um, in order to protect yourself from, from regime change. So it's really hard to see what the strategic logic is, whether they just want a better deal in which the Iranians give away more stuff, which is, isn't going to happen. I think we all know that. Or whether they want an excuse to take a hard line against Iran, economic sanctions, maybe even military activity in the future, because they want to seriously destabilize the, the Iranian regime. Uh, that being said, uh, Trump feels that Iran do, not doing enough to curb terrorism. That is at the root of this, is it not? And how does this plan help that? Well, the, the Iranians certainly do a number of things which are, are not desirable. Uh, their interference in Lebanon through Hezbollah is, is not desirable. Their support for the Houthis in Yemen, although it's a relatively small part of the Yemen conflict, is not helpful. Some of the stuff they do in Iraq has, has been unhelpful in sponsoring militias, but they also played a major role in pushing back ISIS, it has to be said, through that support. In Syria, I think the Syrian regime is awful, and I'm no fan of Iranian support for the regime, but you know, the U.S. and its allies have also been supporting armed opposition groups as well, uh, which the Iranians would say is, is American terrorism, although that's not how I'd characterize it. Um, you know, the Iranians are a country with powerful uh, with, with significant regional interests, and those don't always align with the United States, although in some cases they're not necessarily always different. I do think that the way to get Iran to change certain behaviors is probably to engage them and have economic rewards for more cooperative behavior, not cheating on a deal. I mean, the U.S. is essentially, the U.S. is the only country not in compliance with the Iran nuclear deal. They are the ones who cheated. Uh, by applying sanctions in violation of the deal by pulling out of it. And I really don't think that's a terribly good way of convincing the Iranians to be less paranoid and, and, and less assertive. Does anyone think Trump's doing the right thing? Israel obviously in support of. Well, Israel, we got to just put a giant asterisk. The, the cabinet and the prime minister were strongly in favor of this. Interestingly, we know that the Israeli intelligence community and the, region, the Israeli military were strongly against this. They said... We would have liked a stronger deal, but this deal is working for us, and it's in Israel's strategic benefit because it takes the possibility of an Iranian nuclear weapon off the table. So, you know, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has very strong views on this. Those views are generally not shared in the Israeli defense establishment, but it's a democratic country, and, you know, the government makes policy 
not the defense and security um, uh, experts. But it's been very clear in Israel that the prime minister's views are not changed, are not shared by most of his intelligence community and most of his senior generals. Uh, Donald Trump's tough guy image seemed to have worked with uh, Kim Jong-un after, you know, what's, what started with fire and fury. Uh, is this tough guy image going to work here? Well, it has to be said with Korea, that, I mean, I think that the sort of, you know, crazy man, tough guy stuff worked a bit, but it only worked because the South Korean president at the same time was holding out the hand of dialogue, you know, possible incentives, etc. So if it hadn't been for South Korean policy, I don't think we'd have gone anywhere with, with North Korea. Um, what we'll see now is the Europeans, the Russians and the Chinese talking to the Iranians and seeing whether revisions in the deal might bring the Americans back, or, though I think that's unlikely on the Iranian side that they'll accept that, or whether there's something they can offer the Iranians that offsets the economic damage. The other thing that's going to be infuriating Europeans is that the Americans are essentially using sanctions which prevent European companies from trading with Iran. And that kind of extraterritoriality has been an issue for Canada in the past with the United States. You know, it's, it's one thing for the U.S. to prevent U.S. companies from doing things, but when they're essentially using the law to punish other countries for for doing things, that that's deeply problematic. And I think that's going to really generate a fairly significant political economic rift between the, the European Union, particularly the British, French, and the, and the Germans, and the U.S. So we're going to see this as a completely inappropriate exercise of U.S. economic power. So you don't think these same tactics will work for Trump? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how will Donald Trump position this as a win? Because you know that's coming with the North Korean thing. I mean, he had people chanting Nobel Peace Prize, to which he was gloating over. Um, How is he going to come out of this with a win? Well, I I don't think he has. I mean, what he's done is he's made an Iranian nuclear weapon a little more likely than it was uh, two days ago. Um, How he spins it as a win, well, maybe the Iranians will agree to some additional protocol that uh, may be face-saving that allows the Americans to jump back into the deal, and he can say, oh, look, they agreed to something else. I'm not sure the Iranians particularly want to hand him a win. Um, So, uh, And as I say, it's controversial on the Iranian side because there are a lot of Iranian hardliners who think that they gave away too much in this deal, uh, not that they gave away too little. Um, But he's he's focused on domestic politics. It's going to play well with the Republican base. I mean, his approval rating might be hovering around 40, 42 percent, but his approval rating amongst Republican voters is still up, you know, 85, 90 percent. and that those are the numbers he cares about. Um, I don't really think that this is based on a thoughtful appreciation of the sort of geostrategic hmm. realities of the, of the Gulf. What about the rest of the country staying in, including our allies in China and Russia, trying to keep this thing propped up? Can that be done? Does it need the U.S. to keep this going? Well, I mean, the problem is the secondary effect of sanctions. So Airbus was going to sell billions of dollars of planes to Iran, but cannot do so because, you know, 10% of the plane is made in the United States, the engine parts in particular, and therefore are subject to U.S. export controls. Uh, lots of companies that operate that might operate in Iran will be reluctant to do so because it might compromise their U.S. operations. So the Europeans, I think, will be looking for countervailing benefits, There's, but they may be constrained. The Russians, yeah, they can offer some things the Iranians want, particularly weapon systems, but you know the Russian economy is the size of Australia. They're not significant economic actors, and what they have is oil, which Iran doesn't need. 
The Chinese, uh, if I were in Beijing, uh, realizing how important Iran could be to me, I'm a, I'm a China that needs a reliable source of oil. I've got the ability to deploy multi-million dollar projects and not necessarily worry about the U.S. backlash in quite the same way. Um, it'd be interesting to see if the Chinese step up in a major way. They have this one belt, one road economic strategy of trying to extend their trading links across South Asia, the Middle East, Africa to Europe. Iran is a pretty useful stop on that. So I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see if the Chinese actually step into the breach a bit here, as we've seen with other Donald Trump policies, you know, uh, um, Pacific trade, what have you, that sometimes the U.S. does things steps back and the Chinese take strategic advantage and say, well, we're, we're the more reliable partner than Washington. Uh, we'll step in here. Uh, you, you brought up oil prices. What about oil prices? How will that affect world markets? Uh, I mean, the thing about oil markets is, is they think ahead. So since we thought he might be pulling out to something that's already factored into current prices, I don't think it's going to have a marked effect soon if the deal comes off the table entirely, that is to say, the Iranians say we're not abiding by it anymore, uh, which they, they could legally do. I mean, the, the Americans, you know, it's up to the Iranians whether they want to you know, continue the deal, even though the Americans have, have broken it. Um, that would put oil prices up. And obviously, if anything confrontational happens, that'll, that'll spike oil prices significantly. But I will say the, the Iranians are very strategic decision makers. Um, it's bizarre to say it, but in some ways, much more geostrategically rational than, than the Trump administration is. They play chess. I don't think they're going to do anything um, particularly provocative. I think they'll be seeing what everyone else is offering them at the moment uh, and, uh, and trying to you know, reap countervailing benefits from that. You talked about Bombardier. How will this affect Canada and perhaps even the oil industry? Well, it, it means that Canadian companies who thought that they had business opportunities in Iran, and there were massive opportunities for Canadian companies, both, as you say, in, in you know, aerospace aviation and in the oil sector and in other sectors, those Canadian companies may now find it difficult or impossible uh, to operate in Iran because of fear of secondary U.S. punishment. So essentially... What the Trump administration is doing is it's directly harming Canadian businesses. It's weaponizing harm to Canadian businesses as a way of hurting hurting Iran. And this is a problem that for decades Canada has a pro- has has been concerned. It used to be true with regard to Cuba. You'll remember back in the back in the day, um, where the U.S. uses U.S. law to essentially force Canadian businesses to not do things or to do things. Um, I think it's deeply problematic. We're not going to be raising it, I don't think, for the Trump administration because we've got bigger fish to fry with NAFTA right now. We're trying very hard not to mm. not to annoy them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, this hurts this hurts Canadian the Canadian economy. There's no doubt about it. Rex Brynan is with us, professor in the Department of Political Science, McGill University, expert in Middle East politics, regional conflict, security development. Rex, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new Ipsos poll, This, and I guess this sort of tells you where Ontarians are. A new global Ipsos poll says 74% of Ontarians responded said, they like different choices, please. Uh, can we wipe these leaders clean and start with a new set of leaders? Wow. Uh, you know, if we were another couple of months out... They may get what they want. Uh, let's bring in David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News. He is with us now. David, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. 
Yeah, no, happy to be here. And you're right, in a couple of months, I think, uh, well, let's take one scenario that the polls sort of have, that Doug Ford is the premier, the PC leader. Well, you can bet that Andrea Horvath, having run three times as, uh, uh, as leader of the NDP, uh, she's out and we'll have a new NDP leader. And you can almost bet that Kathleen Wynne, if she loses to the PC leader, uh, the Liberals will be looking for new leaders. So you're right. We, we may get what we wish for us, Ontarians, a bunch of new leaders in a month or so. Uh, first official day of electioneering, although, David, you must feel like we've been at this for a month or two already. This is the thing with fixed election dates. Everybody knows when the election is coming, and so everybody starts gearing up. Not only politicians, you've probably seen this, Scott, a whole lot of third-party ads. We've seen working families this and working families that. Um, a lot of uh, union money is, has been in the game, uh, pretty much trying to take out Doug Ford uh, and support the Liberals. In the last few elections, we've seen millions, literally millions of dollars spent by union proxies trying to get uh, liberals elected. This time around, I'm not so sure it's going to work. If anybody's going to benefit from that third-party anti-Ford money, it's probably Andrea Horvath. She's in the unique position of being able to scare liberal voters, nervous about Ford, into getting behind her. And of course, in 2014 and in any number of uh, other elections, the liberals are usually best at scaring those soft voters on the left about being scared about a right-wing bogeyman like Doug Ford or Stephen Harper or you name it. But in this time around, uh, Horvath could, as I say, she's probably the one who's got the most room to grow in terms of support. Even though Ford is at the lead right now, he's kind of at a ceiling for where his support might be. And it's not going anywhere either, I should say that. His support's pretty rock solid. Horvath, though, could steal a lot of nervous Nellies who once voted for Kathleen Wynne. Will this election campaign look different than others? You talked about third-party ads. There were supposed to be changes to all of this. Uh, is this mm -hmm. going to seem like a, a normal election to Ontarians, or will they notice a difference here? No, I think they will notice a difference. First of all, we're in full-on social media, bypass the media um, sort of mode, and we saw that with the Ford campaign. Uh, the Ford campaign did not organize a media bus, which normally media pay to be on a media bus and to be honest i think in this day and age it may make sense so you know global news we're all over the province and wherever ford goes there's going to be a global reporter there we don't necessarily need to be on the bus but it also means that uh all the campaigns and i mean all of them will be going around the mainstream media to connect with their own supporters and again using social media primarily uh to do this and it just means that if we're reporting on this campaign to find all the nooks and crannies and get a sense of what's going on uh, voters will have to look in some different places, and so will reporters. So that's, I think, the the, mm. uh, the main difference. And then I mentioned the other one is just that we're starting this campaign with the Liberals in third place, and they got a good chance of finishing in fifth, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It's not going to get much better. Uh, so let's talk about this poll. 74% of Ontarians wish it was anybody but those three. Uh, is mm -hmm. this specifically about the leader, or are they looking for a new party to vote for? You know, I, I think these sorts of polls, uh, would you like some other choice? Uh, you know, if it's not 73%, it's 60%, it's 65 That's kind of the way voters in any jurisdiction feel as a campaign gets going. They don't see something that's perfect. There's the odd exception. Justin Trudeau was one of those exceptions. There was a lot of Canadians, obviously, that, that thought Justin Trudeau was the kind of breath of fresh air in 2015 that the country needed. But that's usually not the case. But um, I actually thought Kathleen Wynne had the best answer um, on this issue this morning. We, we asked her, we said, what about this? People seem to want none of you. And she says, you know, 
that's the way it is in elections. It's it's you're never going to see a situation where an electorate wakes up and goes, golly, gee, I'm happy with all my politicians are all doing such a fine job. Um, that's what elections are for. They're for people to argue with each other, to present different ideas. You're going to like some of those ideas. You're going to hate some of those ideas and you're going to like and hate the people who advance them. The winner for this thing, you know, probably wins 40 percent, maybe 38 percent of those who vote. And that's not all Ontarians. That's only those who vote. So uh, that's really what the political parties are focusing on, just building enough to get first past the post. That is our system, and that's what the political parties really care about. Uh, 74% wish for a different party leader. Does this mean, David, we're going to see a low voter turnout? Not necessarily. In fact, uh, the the other important part of these polls, and this is uh, the latest tranche of uh, a poll Ipsos did last Thursday and Friday, is is, uh, every pollster. Ipsos, Abacus, Polera, Main Street, you name it. Every single one says, this is a change election. So forget about do you like your leaders. Do you want a change of government? And it's if it's 60% with one pollster, it's 75% with the other. Ontarians want a change. And usually when you want a change, or you have a change election, you get high voter turnout. Again, I'll go back to the last big electoral event that Ontarians saw, the 2015 federal election, a change election, a a Harper government that was sort of long in the tooth. We had a, some new fresh face in Justin Trudeau, and an elect, uh, election turnout was uh, hugely high. Notably, a change election may produce higher voter turnout among young people, people who've never voted, uh, among indigenous people, uh, groups that traditionally don't have a, a higher voter turnout. And in this election, the uh, a bigger youth turnout, mm. again, that favors Horvath, who I think at this point in the campaign, if I'm looking for a surprise, it's Horvath. Um, If it's like same old, same old, it's going to be Doug Ford. So I think there will be higher turnout in this one. All right. Can the NDP being uh, Andrew Horvath being obviously one of the most or the most popular candidate? Everybody seems to like her. Can she win with the least favorable party? Yep, absolutely. And she's it's the least favorable party right now. But it's also if you ask both conservative voters and liberal voters, what's your number two pick? Yeah, it's it's Horvath and the NDP. Now, as I mentioned, conservative voters, they love Doug Ford. He, they're not going anywhere. They, they, you know, get, give them a ballot right now. They put an X beside the PC candidate. Um, the battle, I think, is 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 uh, absolutely going to be on the left side. But here's the one thing that I'm going to watch, particularly in southwestern Ontario, in the Hamilton region. Once you sort of go west of Highway 6, take a line from Owen Sound down to Niagara Falls. Go west. Chatham, Brantford. Br- Brantford, open seat, by the way. Dave Levac, the longtime speaker, is retiring. It's It's conservative federally. Um, and who knows, may go conservative provincially this time around. But go west of Highway 6, all the way down to Windsor. Uh, the NDP did great in this part of the country in 2014. We, we called it the Rust Belt. There was a lot of manufacturing jobs lost. And I know right now in the Hamilton region, what with NAFTA up in the air, a lot of people are worried about the manufacturing sector. And that kind of nervousness, again, makes for a change election. We'll see if it's Ford or Horvath, who has the better answers hmm. to those who are working in, the manuf- in, in uh, quote-unquote, uh, Ontario's Rust Belt. David Aiken has been with us, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight, and David will have the rest for you. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, happy to be here. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Brad Clark sent us an interesting tweet uh, in regard to uh, the commentary today, uh, it's the team behind the politicians, I think, that uh, 
need replacing. I, I think that uh, the commentary today, team behind politicians may be worse than the candidates. I think all candidates start with a good idea and uh, really want to help and make some make a change, make some difference. And and I think they get sucked into the vortex of the big machine, whether it's the big orange machine, the big blue machine, or the big red machine. And then they forget why they ran. They forget why they got elected. And it's, you know, it's bizarre. Brad says, absolutely, the backroom rabid partisan operatives can cause a campaign serious damage. That seems to be where the problem is. The leader's just out there trying to, Keep all the balls in the air. And there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes that they're usually blindsided by. I think it's the staffers that work for the political parties. That's where the change needs to happen, not with the candidates. Uh, feel free to weigh in on that at 900CHML.com. Let's bring in Henry, uh, Henry Jasek, professor of political science, McMaster University, talking about an Ipsos poll that says 73% of Ontarians would like anybody but the above. Henry, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem, Scott. What are your thoughts on, on what we were just talking about? Is, is it the candidates? Is it the people that are running? Or does the change need to happen in the backroom politics, these organizations? Well, the problem is I know about a hun- hundreds of these backroom staffers. Uh, they fit into two categories. There are the rabid partisans, and you cannot talk sense to them. They are maybe brilliant people. They're nice people in a number of ways, but they just, you, they just can't. They are just blindly believe that nobody could ever vote for any of their opponents. So we have that group. But we do have a, a group of people in there who try to tell, you know, give the uh, – the leader and the and the, all the other people around them, you know, what they think is really the the rea- objective reality. Even if that objective reality is not very good, uh, is is not very good for the leader or not very flattering for the party or some of its position. So, I, I the rabid the rabid uh, ideologue people and all three parties, yeah, we could do without them. But I do think leaders need people who are going to tell them the bad news when they need to hear the bad news and to keep them grounded in, in the reality of, uh, of uh, you know, of, of what they're doing. Because uh, it is very easy for leaders and, ca- and candidates to believe that they are completely right because they're surrounded by so many people who tell them that. And not only mm. not only the staffers, but the visitors. You go door to door and, you know, nobody at the door is going to want to tell the candidate there is no way I'm going to vote for you. I mean, very rarely do you get any of that. People listen politely. They nod. I'll consider you. They may even say they're going to vote for them. But, you know, oftentimes that doesn't happen. So the leader needs that frank uh, that frank advice saying this is the way things really are and you've got to address it uh, if you're going to have any credibility. When we, are where, when we are where we are right now with populist politics, a lot of anti-establishment, a lot of people just uh, ticked off with, with the status quo politician, will we see this kind of change? Are they having these discussions in those back rooms? Well, I mean, there are some that are, you know, that are very worried. I mean, if we take the three parties, there's no question is that the liberals are really very, very worried. This is the, you know, this is the worst position they've been in since 1999. Uh, They're getting a lot of bad news. I mean, the the poll, I mean, it should be no surprise. I was just looking at a lot of the public opinion polls over the last three years. Since 2015, the public opinion polls for the liberals have been bad. I mean, hundreds of them. There's hundreds of them, and and they, they just have been just so bad for the liberals. 
Orioles. It should not come, should not have come as a surprise that they were going to have trouble this year if they if they looked at those polls uh, going back to 2015. Uh, the PCs are nervous. They're in the lead. Uh, they got they got some good things going for them. But you know they weren't really wondering can our can our leader can Doug Ford who's never never had a run a campaign before at the provincial level can he hold up under what is going to be withering fire not only from uh, not only from the opposition but also from ordinary voters from journalists from pundits from everybody else can can he hold up uh, under that fire and of course the the NDP feels good because they have a leader who's now running for the third time uh, she's upbeat she feels she's going to do much better than the last time or any time she's ever run before, she thinks she has, you know, her, the two people she's going against are not as good as the people she went against previously. And so, uh, you know, she she's very up to beat and very light on her feet, and she looks confident and happy, and, 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 she, and the people are responding to that. So can the most popular candidate, that being Andrea Horbath, win with the least favorable party? Yes, well, of course, what happens is she transforms what people think about the party. But you are right. I mean, this is traditionally the NDP has been the third place party in this province, uh, you know, ever since it was founded. It's always been a strong third place party, but a third place party. But there, there is one time when it won, and that was in 1990 when it has a, had a popular leader. And uh, he had very similar type of situation among the three leaders. It had uh, a liberal premier who had been popular three years earlier, had won a majority, but had worn out his welcome. Very similar to Kathleen Wynne. Uh, the uh, NDP, the PCs, the natural opposition at that point, had a, had a new leader uh, who people didn't know very well. He hadn't much experience, and people didn't know whether they could you know, sort of trust him or not. Uh, and then they had a leader who was running for the third time, just like Andrea, and who, you know, reinvented him uh, himself, was now comfortable running in a campaign. It was the third time he was going, and he started out third. That's Bob Ray, and he wound up first in the beginning. So there's a lot of parallels to 1990. We can't guarantee we're going to have the same outcome, but, you know, it is uncanny the way, you know, we, we how, how similar 1990 is to 2018. Mm. Uh, this poll says 74% of Ontarians would like uh, another choice other than the three that they've got. In other words, they want all three parties to give them a different leader, I guess. Yeah. Does that mean a low turnout? Uh I have a feeling people are going to come out because I do think I think it's going to be a good turnout, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I do think people want to change, and and when you have a cha- when people want to change, normally normally you've got uh, an increase in turnout. So you're going to get a lot of people come out saying, "I want I want a new leader, I want a new government." Or they may be coming out there saying they may be afraid, like they're going to have some people say, I don't like Doug Ford, the PCs, I'm really worried what he's going to do if he's going to get in. And likewise, on the other side of the spectrum, there's going to be people say, yeah, you know, the NDP is a, is the, is a third party. It's, it's a third party for a good reason because it doesn't represent the majority values in the province, and I don't want to have uh, an NDP government. So people are going to be coming out for uh, on the basis of fear, on the basis of uh, uh, changing things uh, on the on the basis that their vote's going to count, and I really think the vote is going to count uh, in this particular election. And plus, but you know, also they have to worry about there's going to be dilemmas. I mean, I think this is an election where a lot of people are going to set down the vote and they say, "I got one vote. I like my local member, and I but I dislike the party leader." Or I like a certain party leader, but I don't think the local person representing that party leader is the best for 
me in this particular riding. And so the voters have going to have a tough time trying to sort that out. Some of them will just give up and not vote. But I, I don't think it'll be that many. I just think people are going to take this election very seriously. And I think despite their dilemmas they're going to have, I do think we're probably going to uh, increase our turnout a bit. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked a lot about uh, legalization of recreational marijuana on this show over the last year or so. Uh, the chatter of late, uh, will this all, will, will we, I guess, be ready before all of this is implemented? Those are the concerns of the promise, uh, provinces and municipalities and such. Now a new report by CIBC says that Canadians could soon be spending more money on recreational cannabis than they do on liquor. They argue that in the next two years, Canadians will consume 800,000 kilograms of cannabis. To talk more about all of this, Brad Poulos is with us, instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University, and on the line with us now. Brad, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Sure. Hi, Scott. Uh, how, how will this affect the economy if this, in fact, happens? Uh, obviously, many have thought this is going to be a cash cow for the government, but is this going to be at the expense of another industry? Well, there's going to be a little bit of cannibalization, for sure, of uh, other industries. We've seen um, a consumption of alcohol in Colorado go down a little bit as um, uh, cannabis got legalized, but not, not in any huge amount. What, what we're really seeing primarily is a diversion of an uh, illicit market or an illegal market into a legal one. So we'll now be attracting taxes and, and uh, more importantly, profit. We were talking earlier in the week with somebody from Beer Canada who represents the brewers of uh, of Canada, and they they've got a campaign out, ask the beer ta- axe the beer tax. Uh, they were talking about how forty seven percent of uh, what you're paying for uh, beer is going to tax. They compare it what we're paying in the United States. How does recreational marijuana not become a sin tax, just like cigarettes and uh, and alcohol have been? I think in the long, long run, it does, Scott. If you look at the um, history of prohibition of alcohol and then its ultimate, uh, you know, re-legalization back almost 100 years ago, the government was very careful not to overtax it or set pricing too high in the new legal uh, market as they were trying to attract folks from the previously illegal market into the legal one. Once you've done that and you've shut down most of the illegal production, um, then you can start to inch taxes up. But as you know, there's there's obviously a ceiling on that because cigarettes show us that if you if you tax too high, what ends up happening is you create um, an illicit market. And the thing is, it's so easy to grow cannabis as compared to making a really good, high quality vodka. That's um, what that was my next question. It's certainly a lot easier to produce than it is to distill alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, um, any one of the three categories of alcohol is arguably much more difficult to do than to grow, you know, a basic cannabis plant. So, so there you don't have that barrier. And and if the government isn't careful, and I think they will be careful, but if they're not careful, then you don't end up moving the illicit market over to the legal market. And then none of these numbers make any sense. <laughs> so during prohibition, when this became legal, I guess they didn't. Well, did they have? prohibition prices to compare it against when they when they started selling alcohol did they say well you can get it on the black market for this so we have to price it at that 
Well, uh, I mean, whereas here it seems we've already got a really established industry going on. Sure, and, and, and Stats Canada has done a good job, actually, of trying to establish a whole bunch of measurements prior to legalization so that we can do the comparison. That's one of the things that we learned, by the way, from not being a first mover and actually studying what happens elsewhere. One of the key learnings from the uh, Washington and Colorado governments was measure, 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 and, and measure as much as you can prior to legalization so that you've got comparison points. So is the government, uh, they must be aware of this, they must be looking at this, they must be looking at how it's going to affect or in relation to tax the alcohol industry? Um, oh, most certainly. In fact, like, let's be real, the, the government has structured the industry in such a way that they're going to make the vast majority of the profits. If you agree with the CIBC numbers, and forget about the actual quantum, who cares if it's $7 billion or 9 if you look at it proportionally, the way the industry is structured, the, all of the power remains in the government. If you think about it, there's hundreds of licensed producers, or will be anyway. There's almost 100 now. So there will be hundreds of licensed producers. There are millions of consumers. And um, there will be hundreds of retailers across Canada, some private, some not. But in the middle, you have a government choke point. Uh, all of the distribution, so the connection from production to retailers, yeah. 100% owned and controlled by government. And it looks like around 70% of the available profits in the cannabis industry are going to go to government entities, either through retail profits or taxation. Uh, the alcohol industry, as I said, is already uh, aware of this and complaining about it and lobbying on behalf of themselves. How will this change the tax structure of booze? Will there be higher taxes on booze than there will be on pot? I, I don't think that you're going to see much change to the, to the alcohol industry. There's no, I don't really see any reason why there ought to be. We're not going to see a mass loss of jobs. Let's face it, most alcohol that's consumed in Canada isn't created here anyway. We're importing wine. We're importing a lot of spirits. Um, a beer, arguably, is, is you know is a different story. Um, but I don't think you're going to see a massive job losses in the beer industry because we now have a cannabis industry in Canada. It's just not realistic to expect that. Is this as will this be as much of a cash cow for government as they're hoping for, or as people are predicting? It's it's looking like there's going to be significant profit slash taxes available. So um, here's a good comparison. In, uh, if you take Washington and Colorado and add them together, they don't even equal one Ontario, and yet they, they account for about $650 million of taxes and fees and that sort of thing. That doesn't even include a dollar of profit because those governments aren't involved in actually selling the products. So you're looking at cash available to the government of probably well in excess of a billion dollars in just our province alone. Um, I can't see that the costs of enforcement and education and all of that is going to eat up the whole billion. So yeah, it ends up being a cash cow, just like alcohol in this province. Uh, you were talking about uh, in, the, in the United States and what we're learning from them doing it afterwards, which makes me think we should have waited perhaps to rejig our electricity system till we saw other people do it instead of being the first ones to go in. But that's another topic. Um, you were saying that it didn't affect alcohol sales in the United States. What about the fact that there's, you know, we're paying way more and are taxed way more in alcohol here than they are in the United States? It's still relatively cheap there because there is such a marked difference in the price of alcohol here and there. Is that comparison fair? 
it, it may, you know, at the margin, you may see a little bit of a different mechanism occur here because of the relative price of alcohol to cannabis. The difference is perhaps greater here than in the United States. I believe that's the argument that you're trying to make. It's it's possible, and certainly at the margin, I would expect a small difference, but I, I'm not sure it'll be a great one, to be honest, Scott. You're not going to see a massive move from beer to cannabis. No. The need states are different. The, the, the way that you consume it is different. You're not allowed to have your, your cannabis joint at the table while you're having a, your meal, but mm-hmm. you can have your beer or your wine. So I think there's lots of arguments, you know, for, for the fact that the change... The, the, sorry, the, uh, the cannibalization of the alcohol market. So alcohol producers saying, hey, our product is being taxed at 47%. Theirs is being taxed at, I don't know, 10% or whatever it's supposed to be. Uh, you, don't, you don't see that being an issue in the future? Um, I think if I was in the alcohol lobby, lobbying industry, I would be making that argument. But at the end of the day, it's about what is the government trying to achieve with the various regimes and we don't we're not trying to pull people out of an illegal beer or wine market so they can yell and scream all they want but the fact is that if the government's going to achieve its objectives it has to have pricing that's in the ranges that we've been talking about eight to ten dollars a gram and taxes of no more than let's say around ten percent or they just won't achieve the the goal and they won't the ontario cannabis stores will be a a huge failure can the government keep these prices down so people uh, get away from the black market and still make the kind of money you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. The, so the amount of money I'm talking about is based on the numbers that were um, in the CIBC report. I had a quick look at the assumptions and the model, and, and it all seems quite reasonable to me. So, yeah, there's no reason not to believe it. Uh, any reason to hold this up any longer? Can you see everybody being ready for this come summertime? Uh, you know, define ready. So uh, there may be some provinces that just can't get their stores open. So in those cases, yeah, they're not ready. And what what will happen? Um, people will continue to buy their cannabis from their local corner weed dealer. Um, I just don't see it. It'll be the end of the world if one or two of the provinces aren't quite ready. And, and I expect that there will be hiccups in every single province, just like there was in the United States as they did this. Uh, we're talking about uh, profits reported by the CIBC saying that uh, cannabis sales will outperform uh, alcohol sales or they'll generate more revenue. Um, with Ontarian, with Ontario's model being so vastly different, say, from an Alberta model where it's much like their alcohol, it, it's a privatization uh, model, and there's, there's way more outlets in Ontario. We're talking about under the umbrella of the LCBO, 40 outlets to start. Will Ontario be challenged to make the same kind of money that an Alberta does? I think Ontario, the Ontario government, if you were to look at every single entity that's a player in this game, so you can add up every, all of the different LPs, all the distribu- distributors, the, the private chains of retailers that will occur, all of the la- testing labs and anybody else involved in the industry, nobody will win as much as the Ontario government. <laughs> Uh, Doug Ford said uh, a while ago, probably uh, a couple of weeks ago now, that he was open to looking at different methods of distribution and busting up the monopoly. Does that change the discussion? Uh, if he means it, of course it does. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I teach entrepreneurship. I'm a firm believer in you know, having uh, 
uh, private industry run this industry run this industry as much as possible. Is there more so mo- is there more money to be made for the government if they put it in uh, private industry's hands? Um, there's arguably not less, which I think is actually the argument we should be looking at. So to me, in a free country, everything by default is owned by private individuals. You've got to have a good reason for a government to own something. If you start with that premise, and then you say, okay, well, the government can set prices. They're going to control distribution to the retailers. So to a degree, they set a floor price because mm-hmm. they're the supplier. Yep. They can put taxes anywhere they like. So there's no reason in the world. You could, you could arguably privatize the LCBO today, and the government wouldn't lose one dollar of revenue and would actually be more profitable because you'd have operators operating the stores and, and paying taxes and all the like, and they wouldn't have all those costs. So that that rings equally true with cannabis. So more option, more options, less cost. Yes, I mean, arguably, it would be better for all if, if the government was not in the retail side of this game. But that's you know not consistent with our current government's philosophy. As this rolls out over late summer, will will government look to each how each province is doing this? individually and try to get some sort of consistency here or will this be very much like the alcohol model where it's up to the individual province to make that decision and and you know with Ontario's decision can you see that changing at all I I think we're looking at the latter Uh, generally speaking the federal government doesn't stick their nose into how we distribute uh, alcohol which is a, a, a provincial matter and uh, I, I can't imagine that this one will be too much different. Certainly, if there's a change in government, and especially to a PC government, certainly if you think about you know the, what we would normally think of as as PC type ideology, you'd expect a move to privatization. Uh, yet we've had PC governments in Ontario since forever, and they didn't do that with alcohol. Yeah, good so, point. Do you think because we have more, we have had more movement on alcohol recently with grocery stores and such that they're open for this discussion? I think that makes perfect sense. Yes, absolutely, for sure. We're, it's a different world than the last time the PCs had a, a long run in government. How will life be different after legalization? I, I don't think it's going to change a whole bunch. Certainly, if you're a cannabis user, your life changes a fair bit because you've got um, you've got access to product now legally. You don't have to worry about being arrested and all of that. For for a non-cannabis user, I don't see their world changing a whole bunch. Especially in Ontario, these stores are going to be very nondescript. There's been arguments about people, more people on the road using cannabis and the like. But the the objective evidence from the United States is that the the change is pretty low. So um, you'll be subject to cannabis testing at roadside. That'll be new. What about the retail experience? Any any sort of light on that? Any idea what that's going to look like? Uh, you know, I, I, I hark back to my days as a kid when my father would walk into the LCBO and there'd be a man with a shirt and tie on behind the counter and uh, he'd write on a little pa- piece of paper what he wanted. He would slide it underneath the glass and the guy would go into the back room with a bottle, come up with a bottle and a bag. Are we going to see the same sort of thing here? No, you know that slip of paper? We're going to replace that with a tablet. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the only difference. And the guy's not necessarily wearing a tie. That's right. But you will know, heaven forbid, you will not be allowed to see cannabis in a cannabis store. We wouldn't want that. So that will be the case. You will not be allowed to see it. No, you won't be able to touch it. It'll be prepackaged in the back, at least at the beginning. 
how so, how does a consumer know what they're getting? How do you act like you know the, the LCBO puts out those big expensive glossy catalogs and are advertising and having sale prices all the time? Uh, how w- what happens here? Yeah, so the federal the federal rules are are understood, but the but the uh, provincial ones aren't. If we just extend the federal ones to their logical conclusion, there should be some in-store advertising allowed, and so that will give the opportunity for the different brands to do a little bit of educating at point of sale. And then, of course, they have their websites, so you'd be able to go and, and get information there, but you'd have to actually do that proactively. That would be akin to you going and doing a bunch of Googling before going to buy a bottle of wine at the LCBO. So, yeah, it'll be tough at the beginning for the brands to, to differentiate themselves and, and, and create an identity. Will that be vastly different from province to province, or is that that's still federal, federally regulated, correct? Yeah, so the, the, uh, exactly. The, the advertising around this product is a federally regulated uh, issue, so they, the provinces can get more restrictive, but not less. So, What do you think the biggest challenge is going to be as this day run, comes closer? For whom? Well, for all of us. So, <laughs> um, my challenge is keeping up with all the work. Hmm. Um, I, 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 I'm not anticipating any huge societal challenges. Do you think this is this will be like the day that they uh, allowed legal sales of uh, beer and wine in grocery stores? Everybody thought the next day was going to be utopia, and it's just another Tuesday or Monday or whatever? I, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Scott. Brad Poulos has been with us. Instructor, Ted Rogers School of Management, Ryerson University. A new report from CIBC says that Canadians could be spending more on recreational, can- on recreational cannabis than they do liquor. Brad, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.